Well, Dave uh, kicked off the, the, the service today talking about what we experienced at the beginning of the week, which is, uh, which is something that's just absolutely uh, atrocious. The, the, we, we experienced more violence against people, people being violent against each other, and that's not how we're designed, and it's not how we're made, and there's something in us that says this isn't right. And, and so I, I wonder, as I kick off this series, I wonder, are there, are there times when you would just say, at the end of a week, you'd just say, you know what, I'm worn out, I'm exhausted. I mean, this week is one of those weeks for me, if, if for no other reason, just for the sake of brevity, if someone were asking me, like, how you doing, I'd say, I'm just kind of worn out, I just... It feels like a here we go again type moment, and uh, and I just can't stand people hurting people, uh, and so uh, there's a, a little bit of exhaustion that comes with that, and that's that's kind of where I am, and and, and where I'm I'm coming into this uh, this sermon today, and and there are other things as well beyond beyond just this thing that we know is not right in the world, and we want to do something to see it end, and we want to be participants in those types of things never happening again. There there are things that are that are uh, maybe just as personal, if not uh, as significant on a global scale. Certainly, they're significant to us that can leave us feeling kind of exhausted, kind of worn out. Maybe uh, your, your boss is is asking more of you in this particular moment and season than you think you have to give, and it's just exhausting. Maybe in this season your kids are back in school or they're starting leagues and, and it's practice to practice to practice and you're not getting time together with your family or even free time with your friends or things of this nature that you really value and it's, and it's left you a little bit exhausted. You're just running around and running around. Maybe you're cramming for an exam and uh, it seems like you just have to push everything else to the, to the side so you can focus on this thing and you're not getting enough sleep because you're spending extra hours and, and it, just, it just leaves you exhausted. There can be things in our life that, that they pile up and all of a sudden that's, that's how we say we are at the end of the day. I'm just a little bit worn out. So the question is, what do we do about that? What do we do when, when that's how we feel? Kind of worn out. Well, the answer to all of those questions and all the different variables that I just presented that can leave us feeling exhausted, the answer has something to do with what we'll be talking about in this series, which is rhythm. Because we're made to flourish when we have a proper rhythm. And when we don't live the rhythm that we're made for, the consequences of, of that can, can be that things seem at least off, if not, if not just overwhelming and, and exhausting. And our focus on things that aren't right in the world can, can swallow up any joy that we might have participating in, in what is right in, in the world. And God knows this is a distinct possibility for us, this idea that our rhythm can get off. When the Israelites were leaving slavery in Egypt, they were traveling through uh, the, the desert toward the promised land, which is, is not a pleasant thing, even though if there's good on the other end of it, traveling through the desert, wandering is not a pleasant thing. But along the way, Jesus, or sorry, God starts to tell his, his people uh, how to live. He gives them instructions for how to live. Remember, they've been enslaved for 400 years. They've forgotten what it means to live free. And so he gives this gift of instructions for how to live. That's where we get the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy, we get this list of, uh, of God telling people, here's the rhythm, the pattern with which you should live so that you can live as free people, no longer as slaves. Number four on that list is, is the Sabbath. Observe a Sabbath. Keep a day holy to the Lord. Something we'll talk about in, in just a couple of weeks. And what's interesting is in Deuteronomy, God actually gives an explanation of why we should set a day apart for worship. Why, why should we keep a day holy to the Lord? He says, because I freed you from slavery in Egypt. It seems like an odd connection. What's, 
What connects those two things? Keep a day holy to the Lord because I freed you from slavery in Egypt. Well, in Egypt, the rhythm was this. Eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, make bricks. Produce, produce, produce. That's what life was for the Israelites. And as long as you could do that, you could live and be okay, as okay as you can be under oppressive leadership. But as soon as you could no longer produce, you're worthless. Eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, make bricks. That's it. But God says this. No, I want you to change your rhythm because free people aren't supposed to live that way. It's more like this. Eat, sleep, work, produce, rest. See, what God is trying to do in changing the rhythm, he's saying there's a way of thinking that, that, that you might believe that says you're only valuable if you produce something. Some of you walked in the room today and you feel that. You feel like as long as I'm producing, as long as I'm going hard, as long as I'm adding value to the people around me and I'm seen as good, then everything's okay. But if I stop doing that, I know I'm worthless. But God says there's a different rhythm that you can live by, one where you rest, because God really wants you to know that you matter regardless of what you produce. You're loved. He changes the rhythm. So in this series, we're gonna dig into that idea, that idea that God has a rhythm for our lives and that there are practices that the church has handed down for as long as the church has existed, 2,000 years now, that help shape us into healthy people in a not always healthy world. And these rhythms can actually help us respond when we're feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling exhausted about things not being right in the world. And let me say right up front, uh, it's okay if this is a challenging series for you. This idea that these practices that have been handed down from the church that we're going to look at together, things like rest and, and prayer and reading scripture and tithing, singing, worship, sacraments, things that Jesus handed down like communion, what we'll look at today, and baptism, what we'll look at tomorrow. It's okay if these seem challenging to you, if you're, if you're new to church or if you're new to following Jesus or if you're not a follower of Jesus at all, uh, they can be challenging. And I, I do want to say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here, we're so glad that you are here. And my hope is, as we walk through these practices, that you'll engage with them, but you'll first engage with a question. Is Jesus who he said he was? Because if he is, that changes every answer to every other question. But I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're participating with us. But even if you grew up in the church, these things can be uh, challenging, especially uh, if they're not part of a rhythm uh, of our life, if we're adding them to the rhythm of our life or we're changing the rhythm of our life to, to uh, engage in these practices. It can feel challenging to understand. Uh, when my son, my oldest son, Caleb, who's now 12, was like six or seven years old, um, I, I sat him down and, and let me just say, uh, right, right away, like I, I'm not a good dad and I don't really know how to be a dad. And so what I do is I just talk to my kids like they're adults because one day they will be. And so eventually like the conversations will catch up with them. So, uh, so I decided, you know what, he's six or seven. I need to tell him, I need to talk to him about compound interest. Like it's really important that he understands compound interest. And so, uh, I don't know why that was so, but I just really, I really believed in this moment. So I talked to him, I said, Hey, you know, you're getting Christmas presents from time to time. You get a little money here and there and you're putting it in a jar. That's such a good thing. Live within your means. That's important. Don't spend everything you have. A little bit of savings built up. That's a good thing. But let me tell you a little bit about how banks operate. And so I told him how, like, if you put your money in a bank, actually they'll lend your money out and they'll pay you a dividend on that. They'll actually, uh, they'll pay you to loan your money out. And when you get it back, you'll actually have more money than when you put in. So it's actually a good investment to do that. And that compounds over time and you can reinvest that. There's stocks and bonds. There's a lot of really good things out there that I want to tell you about uh, in this world. I think 
think there was a PowerPoint involved. And, uh, and so I was really getting into it. And so Caleb's like really locked in. He's, he's really respectful and locking into me. Abby was there as well, my wife. And so she kind of kindly, after I go through this, what I think is a pretty impressive presentation, she leans over to Caleb and she's like, do you understand what daddy's talking about here? And he never, lo- he never lost eyes with me. I mean, he was locked in the whole time. And he goes, I don't understand a lot of what daddy says. <laughs> That's how these can feel. This idea of like, if these, if these practices aren't part of our rhythm of life, it can be like, I don't understand what's going on here. And I wanna be open and on, honest about that kind of from the beginning. But here's what, what I would say, dive in. There's a story of a uh, prima ballerina. I think this is a made up story, but it's a good one nonetheless. Prima ballerina who dances this incredible dance. And everyone there realized, oh my gosh, no, no one's ever seen anything like this before. This is completely new. This is completely uh, unseen before. It's, it's fresh and, and it's exciting and, and it's beautiful. So they rush up to her after the dance and they say, uh, this is a truly unique thing. Like, wh- what was it? Tell us what this meant. And the ballerina responds, if I could tell you what it meant, I wouldn't have had to dance it. We're gonna, we're gonna look at these practices together. We're gonna seek to understand them better. What's the meaning behind these? Why they've been passed down for 2000 years now? But honestly, these are best experienced than talked about. And so my hope is we do understand these, these practices, these rhythms better uh, as we walk through, but there's something that's gonna happen as we practice them together. So, Beginners are welcome. You don't have to uh, pass an IQ test. You don't have to have a certain biblical knowledge to engage in these practices that we'll talk about over the next few weeks. My encouragement, just dance, and we'll see what happens. That leads us to the table. Uh, The table at its core, and I know all of you can't see it in the back. This, uh, I just have to give props to, to the creator. We, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I emailed a guy in our congregation. His name's Russ. Uh, hopefully, I didn't, haven't seen him, but hopefully he's here. Anyway, I was like, hey, can you make a table? He's an IT guy, and uh, so surely he can make a table. And uh, he was like, yeah, I think I can do that. And then he delivered this beautiful table beyond any, I mean, it's just amazing. So I don't know if he's taking orders, but we, I can set that up for you. Anyway, so uh, we wanted to have a table because what happens at a table? I wanted us to kind of look at and see a table and think about what happens at a table. Tables where family comes together. Think, think Christmas meals. Think birthday parties. Friends and family come from from very different places and they come together around a table. So table is is where you celebrate together. It's where you you laugh together. It's where you hope together. It's where you grow together. Table is where that happens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, table is where you keep holiday in the midst of a busy day. Table is where you change rhythm. One of the things that I I feel so blessed to be able to have been a part of, I've I've gone to uh, Africa multiple times with teams from Summit, and I encourage you, be a part of that. We'll send teams next summer. Please uh, consider and prayerfully consider going on one of those teams. But I've been able to be a part of multiple teams. And one of the things that happens early on in really each trip is you get to this new culture, this new place that you're unfamiliar with, and, uh, and, and you walk into a village, people you don't know, who look different than you, have different background than you, speak a different language than you, and you sit down for a meal. And it's slow, because it's hard to communicate, and it's hard to, to figure out how we're gonna work together to prepare this, what are the cultural practices, and, and you slow things down, and you realize there are some differences, but, but you also realize there are a lot of similarities. I mean, everybody has to eat. 
So there's commonality that's found in that. So I love this meal that we have in the village in, in, in Malawi or, or, or Kenya or wherever it is uh, that, that, we're, that we're sitting. I love that meal because it reminds us that though everyone participating is unique, we're not all that different. So tables where those types of things happen. And in Luke 22, we see Jesus sitting with his friends around a table for the last time what's called the, the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And Luke records what happens this way, starting in verse 14. It's in your bulletin if you want to pull that out, if you have your Bible. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I'll not drink it again. I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to celebrate this Passover meal with you. Passover was uh, an annual tradition of the Jewish people that was all about remembering. It was a remembrance tradition. And what it was about remembering specifically was God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt before they walked through the desert and eventually made it to the promised land. You find that event in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, you find Moses uh, pleading with Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to let his people free. Just let my people free. Let them live in freedom. And he rejects that, in, that, uh, that question, that, that desire multiple times. And eventually, God, as an act of justice, but also for his love of freedom, says the firstborn male, that's going to be the penalty for this, for enslaving people, because no one was meant to live as a slave. And the firstborn in that, in that culture was the heir. That was, that was the it. That was the legacy that you left. So this is a stiff penalty. But God says some will be spared of this penalty, the ones that sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on your doorpost. When the Spirit of God comes through Egypt, they'll be spared. So it's important to realize that it wasn't just your heritage that saved you. In this moment, it was, it was also the, this, this sacrifice. This sacrifice more than the heritage is what saved them. So this led to the eventual release of, of the Israelites from slavery. They crossed the Red Sea. They wandered through the desert, and eventually they made it to the land of freedom. So this became a tradition for the Jewish people in the first and second uh, temple periods, uh, there was this big festival that would happen around the temple in Jerusalem. A line of priests would line up and uh, they'd have gold or silver bowls in their hands. And, and a spotless lamb was sacrificed. And this is a little bit brutal, but the, the blood was passed through the temple courtyard into the temple altar area. And then it was sprinkled on uh, the altar this public display of remembrance. This was core to the Jewish people. And in, uh, in Jesus' day, there was an additional meal that was part of this. You'd sit around the table with your family and your friends, and, and a lamb would be part of that meal to remember the Passover, remember God delivering his people from slavery, remembering that people aren't supposed to be enslaved. That's the backdrop for this Passover meal that Jesus has been wanting to celebrate with his followers a meal of remembrance. But Jesus says, 
do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of the Passover, but in remembrance of me. This was a very, very different thing. So what's going on there? Well, the first chapter of John is actually really helpful. When Jesus is beginning his public ministry, John the Baptist is baptizing people out in the desert, and Jesus comes, and there's people all around, and as Jesus comes down the hill, John points at him, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, the, the Agnus Dei, who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb, he's pointing at Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. Sin, if you're looking for a good definition, uh, John Wesley, uh, father of, of Methodism, when he was a kid, he asked his mom, what is sin? And she said, sin is anything that separates you from God, separates you from, from others, or separates you from being the person God has created you to be. That to you is sin. Sin is the stuff that binds us up. Sin is the stuff that separates us from people, moves us toward isolation, the stuff that makes us hide. Sin is what's at the center of everything that's wrong with this world, every bit of it. And during this Last Supper, this Passover meal, the night before Jesus is crucified, with no lamb as part of the meal, you'll notice they had a Passover meal, but all they had was bread and wine, no Passover lamb. He's inviting his followers, and he's inviting us today to remember him as the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus is making it clear at this Passover meal that was about... Uh, bringing a, a new exodus. See, the first exodus was about freeing people from slavery. Jesus here is saying, remember me, I'm bringing a new exodus. I'm bringing freedom from the things that enslave us, the things that ensnarl us, sin. Because it's not a list of tasks that we need to move away from sin toward who the people we have been called to be and created to be. Anybody who's taken an honest look at the things that bind us up, that sin, anybody who's taken an honest look at that knows it's not a list that we need. It's a physician who can heal. So Jesus knew that, and that's why he came, and that's why he didn't crumble. That's why when temptation came his way, the scriptures say he was the only one who was tempted in every way, yet knew no sin. And he carried all the fear, all the shortcomings, all the frailty, all the sin on himself so that we could be slaves no longer to sin, the things that bind us up but as Paul says in Romans 6, we could be freed up for righteousness. Jesus is reminding us of a new exodus. And he's reminding us that we are now pardoned from that sin to see ourselves a new way. We're no longer an account of what we do, right and wrong. We have a new identity. And we're invited to join him in that kingdom vision, which will culminate one day in another table, the table we actually all long for. One where the remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice is just a foreshadowing of. Because at the end of the scriptures in Revelation, it says we're all going to sit down at a table one day where there's not going to be any more fear. There's not going to be any more tears. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not even going to be any more death or mourning or suffering. God's going to set it all right. And the culmination of him setting it all right is a giant table, almost too hard to imagine how big it is with a place set for everyone who wants to dine there. Where we remember that part of him setting everything right is sitting at a table with people who are unique but are very much the same in how they're loved. So we're pardoned to see ourselves in a new way, but we're also empowered to see others in a new way as well. We're pardoned to see 
ourselves in a new way, but we're empowered to see others in a new way as well. There's a book called Originals by Adam Grant. If you've never heard of it, you should absolutely read it. It's incredible. But the opening of this book is a quote by a guy named George Bernard Shaw. Here's the quote. The reasonable person adapts to the world. The unreasonable person persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable person. Jesus was a lot of things but he was certainly unreasonable. He had this idea that there'd be a new society where uh, division wasn't the, the factor that people looked at most. You didn't put people in smaller and smaller boxes and, and define them to separate them out. Actually, there was a society where there was a table that was unending in terms of the amount of spaces. His vision, his vision wasn't just that people could come around that table and sit together in some tedious sense of, of lack of war uh, for a moment and then return to their corners. No, his was that this table was a place that we would all gather together forever. He's unreasonable. And do you know in the middle of him presenting this kingdom vision, this idea of a new exodus where we're freed up from our sins so that we can be, uh, that we can give ourselves in freedom to, to righteousness, to reflect his character in the world and invite as many people along as possible. And, his, and right in the middle of him giving this picture, you know what happens? A fight breaks out which is crazy. You think like, oh, the Bible, I get it. Like Jesus is in the middle of like this, this really epic thing and now everything's gonna move in the right direction. Nope, the disciples start fighting. You know what they start fighting over? Who's the greatest? In the moment when Jesus says, no, 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 there's a, there's a place at the table for everybody. Like you they're like, yeah, but which one of us is the greatest? Like, like I got pretty good looks and this guy's, I mean, he's pretty smart, but I think I got it. And like, I, my vertical jump is the best. And you know, John's very certain, like he's the fastest runner in the group. Like everybody's kind of like vying, vying for attention here. And Jesus, I can imagine in this moment going, what in the world? Like right now, in this moment, I'm about to go suffer for the sins of the world. And this, this is what's most important to you? I have three kids and I love them all so very much, but my vision for how dinner is gonna go doesn't always line up with how things actually go at the dinner table. I imagine Jesus in this moment's like, this is not how I had it planned. Uh, I share that sentiment sometimes. So uh, my dinner table for, for me, uh, the vision is like, oh, this is gonna be a time where we're gonna connect and it's gonna be this beautiful thing and we're gonna, we're gonna grow together. You know, all the stuff I talked about earlier. But what generally happens is some version of this. Abby and I sit down and the three kids, and then it's a constant barrage from me, honestly, of like, hold your fork the right way. Chew with your mouth closed. Don't look at your sister that way. No, you can't have fifths of that thing. Put your feet down. Put your feet up. Why are you standing? Where are you going? What is happening? Where's your napkin? And then there are the kids. <laughs> I gave that one a second. Uh, Abby's great. It's a total joke. Um, uh, she's so mannerly, uh, that's part of why I love her. Um, but, that's, but that's how the table is at, at, our, at our house from time to time. It's just, it, it doesn't line up with the vision. But here's what's so interesting about Jesus. Remember, he's just talked about grace. This is, this is my body, it's for you. I'm gonna give myself for you. Not because you earned it, but because I love you so much. This is my blood, it's gonna be shed for you. Not because you earned it, but because I love you so much. He talks about a symbol of grace and then he displays it right there at the meal. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them about which of them was considered the greatest. Here's Jesus' response. 
Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one that's at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he turns to Peter, who he calls Simon. That's his old name. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he, Peter, replies, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will have denied three times that you know me. Jesus responds to this argument about who's the greatest, who's the top, who's the most important, who's produced the best by saying, I'm giving you a kingdom where serving others is an essential display. I'm turning things upside down. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm being unreasonable. A servant would have been from the lower class. Anybody who was uh, serving at the meal or, or in any other kind of social setting, they would have been lower class. You wouldn't have equal classes, one serving, and then you would always have kind of a lower class serving, less educated, looked down upon. But Jesus says, I need you to take their position. Like, I know the world is telling you that you're supposed to fight to the top, but I actually need you to serve from the bottom. He's entrusting this kingdom that he came to bring, and now he's giving to his followers where, where it's not the haves get a seed and the have-nots. Well, sorry, there's just not enough room for you here. Sorry, I took the last seat. But one where even the lowly, even the other in the world's eyes are invited in. It is totally unreasonable. Because in Jesus' day, you would never eat with someone of a lower class because whoever you ate with is actually what status you took on. And so if you'd worked hard to get to the top, you would never sit at a meal with a servant because all of a sudden you became lower class. You'd never sit with someone who uh, didn't have as much money as you. You'd never sit with someone who was a different ethnicity as you because you would take on their ethnicity. You would never associate with someone different than you. You would only try to work your way up. It was all about status. But here's the thing. Here's what we remember at this table, this one Jesus is talking about, communion. This thing we'll celebrate as we close our service. It's by nature a communal activity. When we come together, there's no them. There is no other. We're just at the same table together. If I were to ask you a question, like, you know, when, when I said there's no them, like, who would pop in your mind? Who is a them to you? There's like me, and I'm kind of normal, and I got my thing going on, but them over there, man, they are out of it. They are crazy. They are awful. They are not good enough. Them, I, man, I don't know about them. Let me just say that at Summit, we're a big enough church, we're a diverse enough church that whoever them is, they'll be at this table with you in just a couple minutes. Whatever popped in your mind, they're gonna be here. And they're welcome and so are you. 
Jesus always seemed to create space for surprising people at his table. At the Last Supper, we sometimes think at the Last Supper, it's the disciples. We've seen the stained glass windows. We've seen the, the, the Renaissance art. They're all together. These are the heroes of the faith, right? These guys were a mess. Around this table, this last table of Jesus, you, you had young and, and old. If you think the, the, the scriptures are an old man's game alone, that's not true. Young and old together. You had uh, a, a Pharisee. These were people that thought their self-righteousness would ha- is how they would gain the world. You had a tax collector who thought wealth and greed is honestly the best way to gain the world. And then you had a zealot at the table who was part of the disciples who actually believed that violence was the way that you gain the world. And they all sat together and they wouldn't have been there save Jesus. Save what he offered. Save the salvation that he gave and the kingdom he entrusted to them. See, he didn't just invite them to the table. He empowered them to see others in another way. They were supposed to look at each other and say, there is no them anymore. And this isn't new for Jesus. We actually see it at the beginning of the gospels if you take the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter one, Jesus' first words of ministry, repent, believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he spends the rest of the gospel of Mark showing what that kingdom looks like. You know what he does in the next chapter after repent, believe the good news, the kingdom is at hand? He's sitting at dinner with sinners. You know, the the ones he came to save, you and I, the things that bind us up. He's sitting with sinners. People like Peter, who Jesus calls Simon in the previous passage. That was his old name. And then uh, when Peter proclaims Jesus as Savior, he changes his name. He says, oh, you're no longer Simon. Now you're Peter. Now you're the rock. Now you're the, that truth is the basis of how we move forward together. But Peter followed Jesus for three years. He saw him heal people. He saw him sit with sinners at a table, people he wasn't supposed to be with, the, low, the lowly and the lonely. He, in, in just hours after this meal, after this last supper of Jesus with his disciples, they'd go out and Jesus would be on trial. And Peter would be standing there at a safe distance. And someone would say, hey, didn't, weren't you with him? I think we saw it when you came in town. We saw it. And he's like, no, not me. In fact, I don't even know that person. I'm just here to watch the spectacle. And Jesus knew he was gonna do it. He knew he was gonna turn his back on him. He says so right here, but he still had a place at the table. Jesus is unreasonable that way. He doesn't just talk about grace, he shows it at the table. Jesus says there's always room at the table for everyone. No one gets left out. When I got married, um, it was so amazing. I mean, to to be able to spend my life with Abby is an incredible thing, but her family is also incredible. So it was kind of a a two-for-one deal. And uh, and I'll never forget at the first Thanksgiving, um, Thanksgiving's a big deal at Abby's at Abby's house. They have this beautiful dining room with this uh, glass window, big glass window that overlooks the rolling hills of Indiana, this huge table. Uh, and then right off of that's the kitchen and the kitchen is just completely covered with food. Like all day, you start in the morning and there's all these little note cards out of uh, Abby's mom is like, now you do this and you put the onions on the thing and, and it's like, it's a whole day thing. And then Thanksgiving dinner is like one of those meals that you start it and you, and, and you just, you kind of sit in it for a while and it takes so much time that you actually just roll into the next meal. It's like, that's what the day is. It's like, oh, I guess it's time to eat again. I'm feeling a little hungry, uh, even though your plate's still in front of you. So it's a big deal. 
But one of the biggest deals of, of the Thanksgiving table at Abby's family at the Latimer household is, is these little name cards. Abby's mom makes name cards so that everybody knows where they go. I think it's her way of kind of making sure everything's as type A as she wants it to be, um, which I respect. I'm the same way. Uh, so, uh, so everybody has a name card. I remember when I came in that first time, there was a seat for me at the table, which I, I was just like, amazing. But I came around the corner and she had made a name card for me. And I can't, I can't tell you what that meant, guys. It wasn't that I was just, uh, the, the, that I was just allowed at the table. Like, oh yeah, there's a provision because we got this extra person. So, you know, get a chair from the back and kind of pull it up. A space was made. I was wanted at that table. And this is not an overstatement. In that moment, I saw myself differently. You can tell a lot about somebody by who they invite to the table. So if you're here today and, and you've, you've found yourself maybe, maybe focused inwardly a lot, like really focusing on self. Maybe it's like, I just want attention. I just want kind of affirmation. I just want to keep moving myself up the ladder. And I realize maybe I shouldn't do that all the time, but that's kind of where I am. There's a space for you at Jesus' table. Maybe you felt like the lowest of the low, either by what you've done or by what someone else has done. You feel unnoticed and you feel uncared for. There is a space for you at the table with a name card. You're not just allowed there, you're wanted at the table. Maybe you've lied, maybe even with the best of intentions like Peter, there's a space for you at the table. Maybe you've been shown grace, but all you seem to do in response is just turn your back on Jesus over and over and over again. There's a space for you at the table. Maybe you're moving through life so fast that you haven't even thought for a second, like, wait, is my agenda the same as Jesus' agenda for my life? There's a space for you at the table. Maybe you're not sure if you want to be at the table with those kinds of people. There's a space for you at the table. And maybe the idea that there's space at the table for everyone when you've worked so hard to get just a little bit of recognition, maybe that idea just drives you crazy. There's a space for you at the table. And at the table where we remember Jesus' sacrifice for the healing of the world, there's pardon for everywhere we fell short yesterday and there is power to live today and tomorrow as we ought. And the bread and the wine that's at this table, what Jesus invites us to use as a remembrance of him giving his body, giving his blood for our sake. These symbols are meant to show that even if we've been wandering, even if we haven't arrived yet, even if we're tired, even if we don't have all the answers, there's a place for you at the table. And we're made in the midst of all we have to do in the midst of the world not being right to create a rhythm where we remember that. Where we remember there's a love that's more powerful than death itself, that death itself can't hold back in Jesus that's meant for you and it's meant for everyone else as well. Every single person in this room, but everyone not in this room as well. The table's where we remember that. Jesus was unreasonable that way. He said, I know you're different. I know you've got all these individual things going on, all these individual agendas. I know there are things that, that separate you, but the thing that unites all of us is stronger than that. 
That's what we're charged with. Living like that is true. We're equipped with both pardon so that we know that we don't have to stay the same and power so that we know we don't have to go it alone. We can be unreasonable people too who turn the world upside down in love in how we create space in our lives, in our hearts, in our communities, at our tables for everyone. Let me pray, and then we'll come to this table together. Father God, thank you for who you are. A God who said, I know you can't get there, so I'll come all the way in love toward you. And I know you can't be all right, so I'll be all right for your sake. I'll be the Passover sacrifice so that we can be in right relationship again, so that we might be free. Thank you for saying that, God. Thank you for living that way. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who gives us this remembrance so that in the midst of a busy day, the midst of a busy life, the midst of of a world that isn't all right, we can stop and we can remember that there is a table with a name card for every single one of us. And I pray that as we remember there is a place for us, we would remember that there is a place for others as well. Give us a heart to help others know that that is true. In Jesus' name, amen.